This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. The Treasury markets are excited because apparently the U.S. government has decided to recommend publicly releasing data on Treasury's trading volume. So before you run away, this is important. So we're going to get into it. Let's talk about it with Liz Capo-McCormick, Bond and FX reporter at Bloomberg News, who wrote the story. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York, along with Alex Harris, Bond reporter at Bloomberg News. These two individuals have been so busy at Bloomberg uh, this past week or so because of the overnight and repo stories. So Liz, let's start with you. Um, It seems like a pretty dry headline. (laughs) Why is this important, significant, worth reporting on. Right. Well, I, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit in the weeds, but it's important because the Treasury market is the biggest in the world, the biggest debt market. And um, unlike might seem obvious, it probably, you know, has the least amount of kind of publicly released data, whereas on corporate bonds, there's almost like a ticker. We call it a ticker for that, just like in stocks. And then the Treasury market in 2014, when we had that flash rally, this big move, no one could figure out, regulators realized, Ooh, they even had trouble finding the data. So they did a lot to gather the data. FINRA, who runs a called Trace, it's a trading a bond mm-hmm. data gathering platform, said uh, they helped them. And they have had the data for a while for regulators, n- not for everyone else. So there was a big push to have some public re- release. They've taken years and years to think about it and analyze. And today they finally decided, although some are not so happy because they're only going to release volume and no price data. So that was a you know some are disappointed in that um, because it was years in the making and, and you know some people want as much as they can have you right know, right transparency trade, yes transparency yeah so how does this change things? I mean I don't know if it actually does because mm-hmm. I mean the biggest thing when you look at like and compare it to like the futures market where like the primary focus there is price discovery is being able to see exactly what the price is and and make trades around that and figure out what you're going to do around that like. Volumes, Liz and I were talking about it on the desk earlier, like volumes, like what does volume tell you without price? Like you don't really get a good sense of maybe the market depth. I mean, maybe you it's do, kind of like, if oh, there's, there's something a lot, so out There's outside. a lot happening, but yeah. I don't know exactly right. what that lo- a lot what is. What it's telling yeah. us. One well, thing, go ahead. Jason. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think one way the volume does help is one, one of the struggles we've all had is knowing the treasury market, like who are the players? Mm-hmm. You hear about the interdealer market and then dealers with clients and at least the data they're going to release on volume will s- splices it out and gives you a f- you know a feeling are these kind of prime uh, principal trading these high frequency traders taking over the treasury market and the one slice of data so far the treasury gave us shows they're not really overtaking all the markets so I-, I think that is the benefit of volume um, seeing you know who's doing what a little bit on Who's trading what we call these off the run? The main actively traded securities are called on the runs. And then there's these older ones that people buy and sell, but you don't have, you have the kind of the least data on. So, so let's give them the credit of right. that helps. But a lot of people are saying this is kind of a little iteration and we need a lot more. You well, know? and Alex, to that exact point, the headline in your story to me says it all. 
an uneasy calm has has returned to the market. So as you guys have been discussing, people are like, okay, cool, I feel a little bit better, but now it just feels like they're waiting for something else to happen to get worried about. Well, it's sort of like the Fed has done enough in the short run to address quarter end and any potential you know, instability next week, but everyone's already looking ahead. They're looking to the end of the year because then you have more regulatory issues. You have the banks continuing to pull back on their lending in the repo market to shore up balance sheets for regulatory purposes. So now people are already worried like, oh my gosh, well, what if the Fed doesn't have anything in place by the time they meet in October? Like, you know, a more detailed plan about outright purchases, you know, and the growing the balance sheet again. That's what really people are looking for now. It's not about, okay, well, we're, we're sated for the next week mm-hmm. or so. And, you you know, but we're worried about year end, and that's why I think it's a little premature. You know, when former New York Fed President William Dudley's on TV this morning with Bloomberg and says, "Oh, repo is back. You know, it's lower. Fed funds is back within the target range, and mission accomplished." Is he right? He should know. Uh, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's a great, smart guy, of course. Um, but I think there is a, a crescendo of people calling for that more needs to be done. Even Alex had a great story with Matthew Bosler about the former, you know, head of the markets desk at the New York Fed, Simon Potter, who was speaking mm-hmm. at a private, you know, talk at Bank of America saying this we more needs to be done, meaning probably purchasing assets which will permanently raise the amount of reserves in the system. So I think more people than not are saying, okay, this is a short-term fix. And and plus the Fed is, not to get too into the weeds, but the Fed is in a different kind of structure where they shouldn't need to be doing these short-term temporary open market operations all the time. So if they're going to have this new structure, they need a permanent fix, like Alex is saying. So I I think more needs to be done because we don't want to be going. Even uh, Chair Powell said, we're really not planning to do these kind of short-term fixes all the time. So something has to be done on a bigger way. It's such human nature, though, to be like, no, 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 okay, let's just fix this, and then we'll worry about the big thing later on. I mean, we do that as humans all the time. Well, I think also there's just so many structural issues with this market, and, you know, what people were telling me last week is the two big takeaways were the Fed needs something more permanent, and we have way too much Treasury supply, and I think as, you know— Dealers are forced to continue to absorb all the supply that the government is issuing. Like, this is going to be a problem because eventually you're going to get to a point where they're going to say, this is not good for my bottom line. Right. I can't keep carrying this. And you're going to get them selling back into the market. And that's where it gets problematic. And that's where yields rise. Right. Which is why you would maybe want more transparency uh, in the future. Guys, thank you so much. You really are the dream team. Liz Kappel, McCormick, Bond and FX reporter at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter at McCormick Liz. And Alex Harris, check her out on Twitter as well. Bond reporter at Bloomberg News. Um, I forget what your Twitter handle is. At Who's Alex Harris? At Who's Alex Harris. <laughs> I don't know. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this. Yes, it's Monday, and this is Bloomberg Radio. So positioning your portfolio for the next decade, it might seem difficult considering the uncertainty about global economic growth, Brexit, trade policy, so many things, geopolitical tension. So even with all that going on, our next guest wrote a book. It's coming out this fall. It's called Non-Consensus Investing, Being Right When Everyone Else Is Wrong. Rupal Bansali is Chief Investment Officer of International and Global Equities at Ariel Investments. They've got over $12 billion in assets under management. Of that, she manages $7 billion uh, alone in international and global equity strategies. We are delighted to have her in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Welcome. 
Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I love this idea of long-term investing because I feel like nobody can figure out what's going to happen tomorrow uh, because of so many of these big macro issues that are out there. Talk to us a little bit about the concept behind your book and what gives you the confidence to make long-term investment decisions right now. Sure. I think in investing, uh, it's really important to not focus on winning the battle, but winning the war. And in fact, often you must lose the battle to win the war. Too many people are focused on investing in what's working now, and that means winning the battle, but it could end up losing them the war. And that's kind of what I'm trying to draw out here, that you need to think long term as to what's going to work in the long run, not what's working in the short run, giving instant gratification, but at a great cost potentially. Well, and across the book, you give a lot of great examples that aren't necessarily the traditional, you know, this stock or, or this company. You talk about the world of business, obviously, but you talk about some subsectors of it. You talk a little bit about private equity. You talk about sports. You know, how how did you sort of pick the right examples and, and what are the ones that, that might feel non-traditional to, to folks reading this? Sure. Thanks. Uh, well, I've been, you know, investing in markets for 25 years. So there's a lot of case studies that yeah. have developed over the years. And I invest in 50 countries around the world doing global. So there's a lot of rich, uh, you know, fertile ground for me to recall from my own investment experiences, you know, these sorts of ideas. Uh, for example, you know, in the book, I talk about avoiding Fang and owning Mang. And few people think about, you know, not owning Apple, but that's exactly what they thought when they owned BlackBerry, you know, like it would last forever. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and when, it's, when it's succeeding, nobody thinks about failure. Sony was the Apple of Japan at one point, and I've been through those cycles. And I think that's kind of why my antenna for failure and for buying the future as opposed to buying the past is very high. All but right. It, what's Mang? Hold on. Yeah, Before we let uh, people, <laughs> the, you know, move on to the next thing. What's Mang? Okay. So uh, Mang is companies like, you know, Michelin, uh, which is a tire company. Nobody thinks of, you know, tires as being a consumer staple. Right. You overpay for consumer staples in this market, you know, the low volatility stability trade. Well, guess what? Tires are not a consumer discretionary even though that's a sector they trade under, uh, they're actually a staple. You have no choice. You have to replace your tire and every couple of years. And even if you end up with electric vehicles exactly. or hybrids or whatever tires. they are, you're going to still need tires, exactly. right? At least at this so point. This is the kind of non-consensus idea where you pay only 11 times earnings, you clip a coupon of 4% dividend yield uh, in, in euros, which is a strong currency, uh, and, and you, know, you don't have to end up with 2x the P multiple on these other consumer staple stocks with half the dividend yield. So there is value in the market if you know how to find it. You just have to be correct and non-consensus. But what do you say to fighting kind of the momentum that's out there, right? Uh, you know, you could have gotten, you know, really beat up in terms of your portfolio by ignoring kind of the run-up in the FANG names just because of index funds and everybody kind of chasing them. Actually, um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, passive, which is, of course, you know, the trade du jour. Right. Uh, and I think that that's the other red herring in the markets that, you know, it's, it's sort of the default option, the slam dunk option, and active becomes so vilified. If you think about it, known consensus investing, the title of my book, is just another name for active investing, mm -hmm. which is the more known consensus you are vis-a-vis the benchmark, right. you know, the differentiated your portfolio is the higher active share, uh, you know, the more known consensus. So I would say that this bandwagon towards passive uh, is a mistake because it's become a crowded trade. The setup is exactly what it was. I remember late 1999, everybody wanted to be in passive, you know, preferably NASDAQ, triple Qs, uh, growth and momentum. And nobody wanted to touch old economy stocks, which are actually the attractive names to own, compelling names to know, you know, resources, real estate, railroads. Guess what performed in the next decade? 
it, it was all of that. And right. who saw that coming? And that's the value of being a long-term investor. You can buy these things when they're not bid up. So you actually get them at a discount and then you get to trade them all the way up to a premium. So I think that's the beauty of being a contrarian, provided you're correct. I'm not right. saying just take the other side of the trade for you know, no rhyme or reason. You've got to do your research. Right. But there is ample opportunity to make money in this market if you know how to. Right. And the book shows you how. I mean, that's right. really why I wrote it. Well, it's a great read. Thank you so much for sharing some of that with us. Non-consensus investing, being right when everyone else is wrong. There's also a chapter that we didn't get to that gets into breaking the glass ceiling. Great and, message for and, women. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of messages embedded in there as well. Rupal Bansali is the author. Again, the book, Non-Consensus Investing, Being Right When Everyone Else Is Wrong. Pulling down, we're going to talk a little bit about the potential collapse of liberal capitalism. Timely conversation as the world's business and political leaders, everybody descending on New York City for the UN General Assembly. Andy Brown writes about capitalism going wrong by writing about WeWork, now known as the We Company, and how capitalism, which is widely acknowledged as leaving many behind, needs to be tweaked and not done away with for another system. I love this story. I feel like it's a must read for everyone. Andy is editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. We work. You start there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, suddenly everybody's idea of we work and Adam Newman has flipped. You know, uh, we quickly, right? Quickly, all of a sudden. I mean, it was once seen as the it had reinvented the whole future of work and the office environment. And Adam Newman himself, okay, orthodox, headstrong, but also visionary and inspirational. Uh, and now all these lurid stories are coming out, you know, pot smoking on his private jet and this weird episode where he fires 7% of the company and then has an all-hands meeting and trays of tequila appear and it looks like a sort of this crazy celebration and suddenly, you know, this company is now perceived as being sort of the, the epitome of corporate irresponsibility and self-indulgence and self-dealing and in many ways it's sort of typifies or illustrates the wider predicament that capitalism itself is in. Right. Well, and and you sort of pan out at that point in the piece and you start to talk about, as you often do with us, this relationship, this compare contrast, as we would say mm -hmm. if we were in a high school class right now, <laughs> uh, really between the Chinese system and the American system, the, the Western system of economics yeah. in many ways. Tell us about that. Well, look, there's altogether too much focus on the flaws of the Chinese system, and they are enormous, massive and colossal industrial waste leading to mountains of debt, um, you know, in a top-down system that often doesn't get it right. You know, China's never been able to make an airplane. Um, you know, but people don't focus nearly enough on its strengths, you know, and uh, the fact is that the Chinese system delivers year after year strong, powerful growth. People's lives get better. And whereas the middle classes in the United States have lost hope in the American dream, you know, uh, uh, the idea that your children are going to have a better life than, than you are, in China there's a great deal of optimis optimism that the government is going to engineer economic policies that are going to improve their lives. And indeed, Xi Jinping has gone now from this focus on external rapid growth 
or, or extensive rapid growth to what he calls high-quality growth, very much with the uh, welfare of workers in mind, you know, uh, improving the social safety net, uh, beefing up the medical system, uh, putting, you know, uh, sure, control, party controls in uh, private businesses, but those cells that are implanted in businesses are also trying to make sure that the companies treat their workers reasonably well and won't lay them off en masse, you know, in an economic downturn. So there are strengths and weaknesses of the Chinese system uh, that really shouldn't be denied or overlooked. So and if they lay all those people off, they're not going to serve tequila shots on the other side. To the <laughs> well, they're, not, they're actually not going to lay them off in the, yeah. in, in, in the first place. You yeah. know. Um, so, you know, we, we, there was an interview just the other day with uh, Ren Zhangfei, uh, who, who is the owner of, uh, of Huawei. And uh, he's, he's, he's saying, look, I, 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 can, I can actually sort of sell off my 5G, license out my 5G equipment. And mm-hmm. somebody from The Economist said, oh, yeah, and how much would you charge? He said, well, I, I'm, not putting a, I'm not putting a financial statement. That's not the way Huawei operates. Mm-hmm. We have a different ethos at Huawei. We don't always look for the bottom line. So, Andy, what's to be learned? Because we do talk about what's going on. We certainly have put the question to James Gorman and others of Morgan Stanley uh, and various CEOs about the inequalities that are going on in the U.S., you talk about, you know, the non-existent or it feels like the middle class just being left behind in the United States. Is there something to be learned from what's going on in China that can be applied to the capitalistic system of, of the United States? Well, you know, the so, uh, you know, when, 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 when people lose hope in, in the future and when they see that 0.1% accruing massive gains, mm-hmm. you know, this is the stuff that revolutions come from. And corporate yeah. America has now recognized this, hence this extraordinary stuff statement from the Business Roundtable a couple of weeks ago, Jamie Dimon, yeah. saying, you know, the fundamental, the primary purpose of the corporation is not to maximize profit for shareholders. You know, we have a, a, we have a wider social purpose, our workers, our communities, right. broader society. Uh, now all, this is, all this is well and good. The critique of that is that this can go too far, you know, that it, it, it should not be left to unaccountable, unelected CEOs to, first of all, identify the problems in our society and economy and then uh, prioritize the solutions and how these solutions are implemented and plus the sort of the efficiency argument companies are supposed to be out there doing business not sort of fixing society so then is it the role of the government to step in more aggressively and and do something more uh, substantially yeah, I mean, in a sense... Well, that's what the Chinese model would argue. Yeah. That's what the Chinese model... I mean, you know, what I'm saying, what I, I say in my piece is that you really need this balance, right? I mean, you, you, let's not forget the primary purpose of capitalism, which is to produce value, to produce e- e- efficiency, to grow, to grow the economy, uh, you know. But let's not let it run completely out of control, a la, you know, WeWork and, and, and Adam Newton. Let's bottle the best of that, the innovation, you know, the dynamism mm-hmm. of the capitalist system. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Well, and it is such an interesting sort of synthesis, too. And, and you went there before I could even get there, the, the business roundtable moment, because there are broad implications f- for that in terms of the way that society ultimately is run. And more important, this notion, and you alluded to it, Carol, that CEOs in some ways are being forced to do this because governments, whether it's here in the U.S., whether it's in the UK or elsewhere, simply are not rising to meet 
the challenges, whether it's climate, whether it's income inequality, or, or many of the things that people are most worried about. Healthcare is another. Exactly. You know, the, 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 Chinese, the Chinese are seeing this. You know, they're starting to become more and more confident in their own model of state capitalism. There was a, for a long time, they would say things like, well, you know, our system works for us, but we're not going to pretend it works for you. And now they're looking at the crisis of confidence and the self-doubt in Western societies and thinking to themselves, actually, you know, maybe our system really can right. work. And they're starting, to, they're starting to say, you know, if, if you want a system, and, and this is a very attractive, uh, uh, you know, marketing outreach to developing economy, you want a system to grow your, grow your economy without sacrificing yourself sovereignty our model works wow wow very provocative yeah. <laughs> i'm thinking big thoughts right yeah very big but, thoughts but can i just all right 20 seconds they're all gonna yell at me but human rights at the same time are suppressed uh right just quickly. so i did i did say that the system had has has great <laughs> strengths and massive flaws and those massive flaws include human yeah. rights and the camps in xinjiang and all the things that people talk about exa- precisely we'll right. continue another time i love uh reading what you write it's great yeah and it, i think it's timely with everything that's going on here in new york city in the u.n general assembly andy brown editorial director at bloomberg new economy All right, so housing certainly is something we keep a close eye on, especially in fast-growing cities, and especially at a time when people are thinking about not just cost, but maybe their footprint, literally and figuratively. So let's head down to our Atlanta bureau. Margaret Newkirk joins us from there. She's a national reporter based in the ATL. A fascinating story in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Startup bets single-room rentals are the future of low-cost housing. Mark, Margaret, great to have you with us. Great to be here. All right, so tell us what you found as you went out and uh, found this new way of living, which I guess isn't entirely new, uh, but seems, I dare say, a little extreme. <laughs> tell us about it. Uh, yes, Basically, there there is a guy here named Atticus LeBlanc, and he's basically starting to convince landlords to turn their properties, in, usually in low-income or moderate-income neighborhoods, single-family homes, most of them, into what he calls pad splits. That's the name of his company. And you basically rent one room for $140 a week, and you get your utilities, your wireless, and use of all the common areas. So it's a, it's a return to single-room occupancy, which is a housing style that's been zoned out of a lot of, well, really most cities over the past couple of decades. Who is, this, who is this going to be for predominantly, Margaret? It's going to be for minimum wage workers, people that earn, or, or even a, a bit above that, people that earn here 10 to $12 an hour. So you're talking security guards, you're talking anyone working in fast food, you're talking some retail. When I toward some of these houses. There was a part-time trucker. There was a a restaurant hostess. There was a pastry chef. Um, And and also, there have been at least 40% of their people that that come in are working full-time and are homeless before they start with pad split. Well, and Atlanta is such a fascinating market in in many ways, Margaret, and you know this better than us, in in the sense that it's fast growing and you have a, a really interesting stat in here that the area, the Atlanta area's rents rose more than 
than those in all but two urban markets in the U.S. uh, last year. And while housing is being added, it's really being added at the high end. And not all the new jobs that are being created are high-end jobs. Yes, that's that's absolutely correct. And and the the high-end apartments in particular are now marching into neighborhoods where you would never have imagined them even probably 11 months ago. And what's what pad split says it's doing is it's prevent preventing some of these properties in those neighborhoods from being flipped and sort of keeping them in in the realm where landlords can actually make money renting to people in that bracket i'm not sure how we're supposed to like read into this from like kind of a, a socioeconomic perspective from a housing crisis perspective you know jason and i were just having a conversation with our andy brown about you know, kind of inequalities in the middle class, you know, here in the U.S. versus, you know, the Chinese system, essentially, and what they do, you know, to some extent for for their uh, citizens. So I'm just curious, like, who is this for? And what does it tell us kind of about our society? It tells us that we have a very bad housing crisis. And mm. it's a it's a completely market driven answer yeah. to that crisis as versus say, like a Section 8 program where you're getting government vouchers. And it seems to be for the segment of the low-income population, minimum wage workers, et cetera, who are single or who have no more than one child. It doesn't really work for families. Mm -hmm. And there is one criticism that it may begin to take, because it does make landlords more money, that it may begin to take some properties out of that market, out of the Section 8 market. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because obviously, you know, this is a this is a zero-sum game to some extent that if one, you know, type of group of people, and in this case, sort of single or, or you know, single with one child, uh, folks are living in one place, if a number of them, then that means that that housing is not going to go uh, to families. And, and you do wonder what sort of the longer term uh, implications of that are. Did you get a sense as you were doing your reporting that this is something that could catch on and e- either through other companies in Atlanta or that PadSplit uh, has ambitions to, to go beyond uh, your city? Um, they definitely have ambitions to go beyond our city, but I did not get a sense as to where. Yeah, they're they're expecting they're at uh, I think 400 rooms now with a. I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but and they, and I think 300 in the pipeline. That's in the Atlanta area. They're predicting October 2020 they'll be at 3,000, and that's including other markets. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, it's it's a great uh, piece of reporting. Margaret Newkirk joining us from our Atlanta Bureau. We're going to be in Atlanta uh, in about a month's time. Looking forward to catching up with Margaret and the team down there. There's an amazing uh, chart in the, yeah. that goes along with this story that talks about the number of cities where there's two times more jobs than housing. You're talking about cities like L.A., New York is one of them, Phoenix, Miami, San Francisco, Boston, Riverside, California, Philadelphia, Detroit, San Diego, Denver, Seattle, right on the cusp of that as well. But there's a huge business side story to this about how it's uh, got an amazing bottom line. There's a quote in that story. So, you know, the money is certainly going after it. Absolutely. As Margaret said, it's a market-driven solution in a lot of ways. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. 
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Monday. Tom Plum is back with us. He's president and chief investment officer at Plum Funds, based in Madison, Wisconsin. Back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio, the Plum Balance Fund is in the 99th percentile for the past five years, meaning it beats just about all of the other funds in that category, returning on average annually about 9%. So welcome back. Thank you. Nice performance. Thank you. It's great to be here. So what do you think about this active versus passive debate that's out there? Well, I think um, I think it's been around for a long time. We've had index funds, and they were always going to take over, and they continue to encroach and build up their market share. But I do think that there's some great opportunities because once money starts chasing indexes and things that hadn't existed when these correlations were first established, right. I think it changes. It changes the dynamics. Yeah. You know, we were talking early in the show with the author of a new book, uh, Rupal Bansali is her name. She's got a book called Non-Consensus Investing. And one of the points she made in support of active management was essentially you got to do the work. You know, you you essentially have to go find some names. And and you have a a theory or a a conviction right now that basically there are actually a lot of ways to make money uh, in this market. Give us a sense of some of the names that pop out to you as as good places to find some value or some growth here? Well, I think when you can wed a secular trend with a business model that's in recurring revenue and revenue growth, I mean, no one became the largest company in the S&P just by cutting costs or things. It's always been revenue growth. So when you think about these trends and these fears that we currently have right now, what does that mean for the markets? Well, one thing it means that we're going to continue to spend money on defense. Mm-hmm. And defense um, is become an more and more, there's few companies that are dominating the dollars. It's been a lot of consolidation, right, right. within the industry. A lot of consolidation. And yeah. so Lockheed Martin, for example, has the F-35. Uh, probably in the next two weeks, they'll get the $34 billion order from the U.S. They have the hypersonic missiles. They uh, continue to earn money from the F-16. And when you have a company where you're expanding your revenues – especially a company with the capital X that they need, it starts to expand their margins. So you're going to see revenue growth, margin growth, trading at 16 times earnings, probably raise their dividend this year. It's it's a great opportunity to see the wedding of the secular trend and the current political events. Is that also why you also like, let's talk about some other names. Um, Fleet Corps is another name that you like. FLT is the ticker. Yeah, Fleet Corps and Wex, they're two companies that provide the uh, business processing, financial transaction processing for the fleet industry. Well, one of the things, uh, Fleet Corps doesn't necessarily disclose its sensitivity to fuel prices. Right. Wex does. So every 10 cent increase in the price of fuel is about 21 cents in earnings per share for Wex. So here you have a company that's got the great secular trend of B2B, uh, transaction processing, all the security, all the issues and ease that it brings to their 
uh, clients. And then you put on top of it the Middle East tensions going to cause probably the price of fuel to go up in the near future. So how do you play something like the U.S.-China trade war? Because clearly we don't see a real slowdown in consumers on either side of that equation. And so are there kind of big behemoths that, that maybe you invest in knowing that even with a decoupling of sorts, people are still going to keep buying? Well, and, and again, there's a secular trend in China and a lot of these company, countries where they're export-driven, right, is that they're mm-hmm. starting to try to build up their consumer right. segment of their economy. Uh, that is a trend that's going on. So even though we read about slowing growth in China and stuff, Alibaba, for example, had a 42% revenue growth the last reported quarter. Uh, because there's more and more and more use of all their products, and basically Alibaba is Amazon on steroids. All right, and you also like Amazon. I love Amazon. You're not also. worried about greater regulatory oversight or having to, you know, somehow kind of take apart their businesses because they're getting so big. Uh, they they get a lot of press because of that, and there's a lot of talk about it. But the talk really comes from competitors because. It's very difficult for our legislators to come in with something that's going to restrain somebody who's been lowering our costs for every individual constituent in their district. All right. You've got a good source over in China. You are over there. You saw it personally, but your daughter is living over there with your new granddaughter. Congratulations again on that. So what do you hear back from them? you know, in terms of what they feel like the economy is and how are they seeing the trade war sort of looking back this way? You know, that's really interesting because um, they do have some real economic issues over there. They're not something that is just continuously growing. Uh, They've got a lot of debt on their car uh, dealers, for example, the Mm. auto dealers, uh, and they're seeing slowdown three years in a row of auto uh, sales. But uh, they do have uh, this incredible move to everything is on Alibaba, Alipay. They're buying all these different things. And, you know, um, over there, no one talks about the United States in a negative term. Because um, basically, if the government says the United States is their friend next month, they don't want to be on record as being someone who's been against something, that government policy. They accept government policy, but uh, there was no anti-American sentiment at all on the streets in Shanghai. That's really interesting. That is interesting. And you wonder if that way, I mean, if the government said, if the government did sort of double down and say, well, we are in a much more aggressive stance against the United States, if that might change. It it certainly could. Uh, One of the largest uh, grocery chains was a South Korean grocery store chain. Uh, They fell out of favor, and now you don't see any of those stores. So it can happen, and it may happen. But right now it's not. Tom, is there expectation, just quickly, that there would be a resolution between the, uh, as a result of the trade war, some kind of resolution? I, I think anyone who thinks there's going to be a short-term resolution is pretty naive. Yeah. Uh, this started with Japan, for example, in the 80s, and it took 30 years to get resolution. What we're going to see is small steps, and those steps, so each one of them will be relatively positive from where we are now, but they're not going to be some overwhelming grand one big agreement. grand agreement. Meanwhile, you got to feel be feeling pretty good about your Wisconsin Badgers. 
right oh, now. I love that. Was that was a big, big win over Great Michigan. weekend in uh, Wisconsin. The yeah. Brewers swept. The yeah. Badgers beat number 10 Michigan, and the Packers won. What's not to love? <laughs> All right. Tom Plum, always great to catch up with you. President, Chief Investment Officer of Plum Funds, based out in lovely Madison, Wisconsin, where they love their sports, and they got a bunch of winners right now. Always good to have you here with us in New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.